Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is a special 2020 election edition of Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is the election edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. Joining me on today's podcast is my colleague, Peter Lawrence. Peter is Novogratik's Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. Many of you will recognize Peter as a frequent speaker at our Novogratik conferences and other conferences on housing policy. He's based in Novogratik's Washington, D.C. office, and he has his finger on the pulse of legislative and regulatory issues in our nation's capital. In today's election edition of Tax Credit Tuesday, Peter and I will discuss what we know so far about this election that's been historic in so many ways. For example, voter turnout in 2020 has far exceeded previous records, particularly early voting. And as of the time of this recording, the Associated Press reports that President Trump has already received over 67 million votes. That's 4 million, over 4 million votes more than he received four years ago. And not to be outdone, former Vice President Joe Biden has already received over 4 million more votes than Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton received in 2016. Now, by way of reference, we're recording this at 1.30 Pacific time on Wednesday. If you're ready, let's get started. Now, for those of you that have attended our conferences over the last few months, we've been focused on three major election possibilities. A status quo election is the first one, and that would be where Trump wins re-election, Republicans keep the Senate, and the House remains controlled by the Democratic Party. We often refer to this as the RRD scenario, Republicans in the presidency, Republicans in the Senate, and Democrats controlling the House. The second of the three scenarios would be the presidency flipping to the Democratic Party while the Senate stays Republican and the House stays Democratic. We often refer to this as the DRD scenario, Democratic President, Republican Senate, Democratic House. And the third major possibility that we've discussed is that there would be a blue wave where the Democratic Party controls the presidency and both houses of con Congress, that being the DDD scenario. So, Peter, let's start with the presidential results as we look through which of these three options we're facing or could be facing. Let's start with the presidential results. Then we're going to discuss the Senate and then let's talk about the House. So, Peter, let me start with the presidential and get your thoughts there. For purpose of our audience, so far, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is generally projected to have won 248 electoral votes, knowing that you need 270 electoral votes to be elected president. Trump is projected to have won 214 electoral votes. This means that states with 76 electoral votes are uncalled as of the recording of this podcast. And those states are Nevada in the West, and in the South, North Carolina and Georgia, and in the upper Midwest, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Now, I should note that at the time of this recording, the Associated Press has projected Biden to win Arizona and Wisconsin, but not all projection sites have yet made a similar projection. So Peter, if you could share with our listeners your take with respect to those 76 electoral votes remaining to be allocated or projected to be awarded to a particular presidential candidate 
And how is it looking for both President Trump and for former Vice President Biden? Well, uh, thank you, Mike, for inviting me to join you on this momentous uh, uh, tax credit Tuesday edition discussing the uh, 2020 electoral votes. Um, I, I, the way we look at it right now, uh, Biden is leading in Nevada. And uh, based on what we know in the history of how Nevada turns out, it would appear that that lead will hold, although, again, it has not been called. Uh, so we don't know for sure. I, similarly, um, uh, Michigan, he is uh, in the lead. Biden, Vice President Biden is, uh, former Vice President Biden is in the lead in Michigan as well. And I'll note actually that uh, uh, CNN has projected that uh, Biden has won Michigan, but uh, AP has not yet made a similar uh, a call. So we, we wait to know uh, the results of, of that state as well. Uh, Pennsylvania has a lot of outstanding votes, but uh, uh, President Trump is in the lead there. He's also leading in Georgia and North Carolina. Uh, how all of these uh, various races, uncalled races, turn out, I think the simplest way we might think about this is if uh, former Vice President Biden wins Nevada and uh, Michigan, those are called and uh, hold uh, through various challenges, he will receive 270 electoral votes. Uh, so that's that would be the simplest way uh, uh, for um, Vice President Biden uh, uh, to, uh, to gain the presidency. Um, but if for a reason Nevada, uh, Nevada, he ends up not winning Nevada or, or Michigan, he then uh, would need to uh, win in uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania. Uh, I will note that North Carolina also uh, is still uh, not called, uh, but the lead that uh, President Trump has there uh, is more likely to hold, in my opinion, than uh, any of the other states. So I think that those are the scenarios I would look at. You know, for President Trump, uh, you know, uh, I think he has a narrow path, but certainly still uh, has a way uh, to get to 270. Uh, if he continues to hold his leads uh, in uh, North Carolina, Georgia and Pennsylvania, then all he needs is uh, either uh, uh, Michigan uh, or oh, you know, he needs to win Michigan. Excuse me uh, to 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 get to two seventy. Uh, so I think uh, you know those are the how the way I look at it. And so uh, President or Vice President uh, Biden certainly has an easier path, uh, but. President Trump is certainly not uh, out of the, the running, so to speak, and will be interesting to see how the the votes are uh, tallied in the coming days. That's great, Peter. Thank you for that. So maybe uh, in short, uh, former Vice President Biden is showing us leading in Michigan and Nevada, and if he holds those, then he would be the next president. And if Trump were to hold Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia, the three states that he's showing as leading in right now, and took either Michigan or Nevada, 
then he would be the next president. So it really, uh, you know, it, we're still waiting for the votes to come back. And it may be a few days before we know the uh, initial results. And then there's already talk of, of uh, canvassing and recounts and the like. So it's certainly something that won't be fully resolved uh, for a while. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, true. And, you know, we've been through uh, a, a similar circumstance back in 2000 uh, when uh, the votes weren't decided until the Supreme Court made its decision in uh, uh, mid-December of 2000. Uh, I'm not sure we'll get to that long. Uh, but certainly it's possible, and I think we'll, we'll just need to keep an eye out on how uh, the vote tallying goes forward and how any recount or any litigation uh, that may be filed uh, proceeds. Uh, but uh, uh, certainly um, this is a very close election, and uh, we'll, as we're sure we'll talk about some more, what that means uh, going forward for policy uh, is, I think, you know, we, were, we are inherently divided country and and uh, uh, regardless of who ends up uh, winning that um, uh, 270 plus votes great well we've been talking about the different option the different pass forward legislatively and regulatory wise depending upon who the president is and we we're, we're waiting until uh, election day or the end of voting day and it looks like we'll be waiting a few days longer so now let's turn to the Senate so we don't know if it's going to be an R or a D president just yet, even though many think that Biden is the inside track. Turning to the Senate, uh, in the Senate, heading into the election, uh, Republicans headed had a 53 to 47 seat advantage over uh, the Democrats and the two independents at caucus with the Democrats. And now when you look at you know, the New York Times side or Associated Press and others, Republicans are projected to gain a seat in Alabama. That would take their 53 to 54, but they're also projected to lose two seats, one in Arizona and a seat in Colorado, which would then bring them down to 52 seats. Uh, now to take control, Democrats would then need to gain still, remain to be gained a net of two seats. If Biden wins the presidency, if it was 50-50, then Kamala Harris would be the deciding vote if the Democrats take the presidency. Uh, if not, then if Trump were to be reelected, then the Democrats would need to get three of the remaining open seats. And right now there are four states that realistically are considered open in terms of who's likely to win. Uh, in Michigan, uh, the Democrat incumbent, uh, Gary Peters, is in a tight race. And then in North Carolina, Tom Tillis is ahead, but hasn't been called yet because of the outstanding votes. And then there's also uh, two races in Georgia. Uh, there's a there's the general, the regular six-year election in Georgia. And then there's also the special election in Georgia, often referred to as Georgia 1 and Georgia 2. Uh, and in Georgia, is unique in that if you don't win 50% of the vote, uh, then you head into a runoff in January. So, Peter, what's the probability or likelihood that the Democrats could take two more seats of these, they could net two out of these four races. Uh, and when would we know, uh, when we're likely to know whether or not uh, they would have or would not have gotten the necessary seats to take control? 
Yeah, well, it's it's looking very difficult, not impossible, but uh, highly unlikely that the Democrats will net uh, those two seats uh, in order uh, to be able to have a chance of uh, controlling the Senate uh, with uh, a potential Vice President Biden. Again, I want to emphasize uh, that certainly the presidential rate is not yet decided, uh, but uh, uh, assuming for the moment that if uh, former Vice President Biden is elected president and uh, um, Kamala Harris would become vice president and able to break ties in the Senate. It still is a very tough road um, for Democrats to do that. First, they still have to retain one of their incumbents, as you mentioned, in Michigan. Uh, uh, it's interesting to note that the Republican candidate running against uh, Gary Peters, John James, has a slight lead, which means he's uh, outperforming uh, President Trump in the state. Uh, and uh, that certainly uh, would appear to suggest that he has a chance uh, to survive, uh, even if uh, uh, President Trump ends up not winning uh, the state. Uh, and that would be a little bit of a surprise, given how one sort of dynamic we've I've noticed in this election is that there wasn't much ticket splitting uh, across the country. Uh, a lot of uh, states uh, voted pretty straight uh, for um, either uh, the same party for president and Senate. Uh, so that that would be uh, a bit of a surprise. Um uh, um, for for John James uh, to win, but he is leading, and that would certainly, if he is called the winner for that race, that essentially uh, makes it pretty impossible uh, for for the Democrats to have a chance. Um, in North Carolina, um, uh, Tom Tillis uh, has a lead uh, as well, and uh, given that Trump also has a lead in North Carolina, uh, it's it's uh, I think a decent chance that they both survive. Uh, and if that again happens, then uh, I, again, there, there, there is no chance. Um, but if we, if for whatever reason, somehow the, the Democrats prevail in each of those, uh, uh, and we are in this sort of uh, unprecedented situation of where we have a potential for those two Georgia races determining the control, uh, I think you know, a couple of observations need to be made. Uh, you know, Certainly, Democrats performed extraordinarily well uh, in Georgia in this election. They've done far better than they've done each. It seems like with each election cycle, they get a little bit better and better. But uh, it's one thing when you have a general election driving uh, turnout uh, when you're voting for president and many other offices. A, a runoff election is an entirely different situation. Uh, and there's been a long history of uh, uh, Georgia Senate races proceeding to a uh, runoff and the Republicans winning, given that the uh, runoff electorate is a lot different from the general electorate. And so I have to say that, uh, uh, you know, the, the two uh, Georgia Republicans, the uh, incumbents, uh, Senator David Perdue and Senator uh, Kelly Loeffler would be, are going to be favored. Uh, I can imagine there certainly will be a lot of attention and energy uh, if it, it 
could potentially determine uh, the uh, control of the Senate, but I just I think it's it would be really tough for Democrats uh, to be able to do that. I mean, they essentially have to win every single one of these uncalled races. And that's always a tough uh, order to do, uh, and so I, I don't think it's it's uh, likely that we'll have a, a democratic senate. You know, thank you for that, Peter. Those are uh, great insights. I mean, it does. Uh, you you look at it and you say, if Gary Peters does end up winning in Michigan, so it stays democratic, and if Senator Tillis does win re-election in North Carolina, you would end up with Republicans at. Uh, 50, uh, and Democrats at 48, and then you would have the runoff in January, potentially, of the two Georgia seats. Uh, and the one Georgia seat isn't, the Purdue seat isn't necessarily destined for uh, a runoff. The Loeffler seat is, but the Purdue seat, once all of the additional, the final count comes in to Georgia, it's definitely a significant possibility. But you could basically be you know, heading into January saying the control of the Senate is going to be based on those two races, which will lead to a lot of uh, money being spent in Georgia uh, on those uh, seats. So it definitely be a runoff like very few runoffs we've seen before. So let's now turn to the House, Peter. The, in the House, the Democrats currently are projected to have won you know, 200 seats so far. Uh, and, you know, as we all know, to keep the majority, they need to have 217 seats. So there's 17 short of the majority. That being said, Republicans right now are projected to have won 185 seats, so 15 fewer seats than the Democrats so far. And, and those are those you know, 385 seats don't come as much of a surprise to many. There's a few, which I want you to talk about in a moment. Uh, but there's 50 seats that remain uncalled. Uh, and with respect to that, Peter, maybe you could share your thoughts on those 50 seats uncalled. Uh, you know, I know that you expect the Democrats to retain control uh, of the House, but what are your thoughts in terms of how, to what extent their majority grows or is lessened uh, as a result of this election cycle? Yeah, and this is, a, um, uh, I think, an unexpected development. Uh, going into the election, uh, the polls, like a lot of things in this election, actually had suggested that the Democrats had a chance of increasing the, their House majority anywhere, as I've heard, between uh, a net gain of five to 15 seats. Uh, and that's undoubtedly not going to happen. Uh, uh, unless something dr truly dramatic happens with those 50 uncalled seats. Uh, and I just, I don't think that there's a good chance of that. I mean, when you look at the, those called races so far, uh, you know, Democrats have, you know, flipped uh, two seats in North Carolina, largely driven by um, the districts being uh, redrawn, district lines being redrawn, um, and not necessarily reflecting a, a huge change in uh, uh, any of those districts' um, uh, electoral uh, profile. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, Republicans have put in a very strong uh, performance in the House, uh, uh, flipping uh, seven 
Democrat-held seats, uh, including you know two in Florida, and uh, you know Miami-Dade County uh, centered on those. Uh, that uh, certainly was not um, uh, foreseen, uh, and they also uh, uh, picked off. Uh, seats in um, Iowa, Minnesota, Mexico, Oklahoma, and South Carolina, and so uh, I, I think you know that demonstrates uh, that um, you know House Republicans uh, I think are in a somewhat strengthened position, even if they don't have enough uh, to claim a majority. And and the, I should note the uh, Associated Press is projecting uh, Democrats will have uh, the majority in the House, uh, but it looks pretty likely that it will be a smaller majority, uh, meaning that it's going to be harder uh, for uh, the House leadership to put it through ambitious bills. Uh, they're going to have to negotiate more uh, with House Republicans and uh, among uh, the more conservative uh, members of the House. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, going to sort of uh, curtail uh, more ambitious actions and, and could potentially, you know, influence uh, policy both in the lame duck, which I know we're going to talk about in a moment, as well as uh, in the next Congress. So I think that's, uh, you know, uh, one of the sort of many interesting developments that have uh, happened through this election. Well, thank you for that, Peter. Those are, once again, some great uh, insights. So maybe to summarize, uh, we don't know who was elected president, though it certainly appears that former Vice President Biden leads in enough states to be the next president and definitely appears to have the inside track on being the next president. But it's certainly not clear and a path remains for uh, President Trump to be reelected, albeit narrowing. Uh, and then in terms of the control of the Senate, it, it does look... Uh, like the Republicans are in a great position to retain control of the Senate, but the control of the Senate is quite likely uh, to depend on runoffs uh, in January. Which, uh, when I kind of summarize it, it means that the three options we've been discussing for months, you know, RRD, Republican President and Senate and Democratic House versus DRD, Democratic President and, and uh, Republican Senate and Democratic House versus, you know, a blue wave. That if you had to guess today, you'd say Democratic President, Republican Senate and Democratic House. But realistically, all three are still possibilities. Um, so with that said, uh, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about what is or isn't possible in 2021, uh, because legislation next year is so highly dependent on who the president is and who's controlling the Senate. Uh, so we can save that for uh, another discussion. Um, and I'll, for those of you that are more interested in hearing about 2021, I'll share some additional resources with you at the end of this podcast where we'll be covering some of those, speculate a little bit more about what could be possible there. Uh, but for the rest of this podcast, I wanted to first, Peter, get some general observations from you uh, on the election. And then I want to talk more about the more immediate what could happen in the lame duck. So maybe you could talk generally when you think about this election, you know, what I won't say what surprised you the most because there's lots of surprises. Maybe share <laughs> a few of the surprises 
Yeah, well, one thing is I'm glad I'm not a pollster. Uh, I think uh, uh, the polling profession got a, a black eye, uh, given how uh, the, uh, especially the state level uh, polls, uh, once again, were off. Uh, and uh, I know there are some out there who say, well, the national poll was in the margin of error, but I think, uh, you know, the general impression going into the election, going into the, uh, uh, the final days, uh, was that, uh, there was a win at the back of Democrats, and that certainly did not uh, uh, turn out to be true. Uh, there was amazing turnout. You mentioned uh, how we had record uh, uh, turnout. More votes were cast in this presidential election than in any other uh, election in the past. Uh, and there was tremendous early voting, um, you know, obviously partially motivated by uh, the pandemic. Um and but the and that turnout, I think, as we see in these uh, uh, initial results so far, uh, are that both sides turned out to a large extent, uh, and uh, that means I think we have a very divided country, uh, and that uh, there's there isn't going to be a clear mandate for either president, whoever ends up uh, winning. Uh, it's it's going to be a narrow uh, uh, electoral win in either circumstance, and uh, there's likely to be plenty of legislative gridlock and only very. Uh, heavily bipartisan initiatives are going to be able to advance. So uh, I think uh, uh, that's the main lessons I, I, I see so far. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that is going to impact um, how, you know, the, the, the decision-making in the lame duck uh, to a large extent, not all, not, I wouldn't say it's entirely uh, negatively. Uh, uh, certainly there's, uh, I think, Good potential uh, uh, options uh, for uh, the uh, tax credit community, um, but uh, I, I do think that uh, uh, there uh, is not turning out to a, uh, how a lot of people had thought the election was going to turn out in, in, the re in the last days of the race. And uh, certainly, it didn't turn out the way most pollsters were predicting it was going to turn out, and and. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the posters could reevaluate their work. Uh, you know, I certainly was one that thought after the election four years ago uh, that they would uh, improve and make appropriate corrections to do a better job. And it doesn't appear that they were able to make sufficient corrections uh, to be adequately reflective. So it'll be uh, interesting to watch that development. So let's talk about the lame duck session that's coming up. Uh, and as I mentioned, I'll share a bit more resources that we have available to just think a little bit more about the impact of these election results in 2021, that we want to give a little bit more time for the election results to uh, be revealed, uh, to be a little bit more focused on what is, is impossible next year. But let's talk about the lame duck session, no matter what happens uh, with respect to uh, these election results and who controls the presidency and who controls the Senate. Uh, they're still going to be the current Congress and the federal uh, spending is authorized through December 11th. 
So we know there's this lame duck session coming up where we need to fund the federal government beyond the December 11th funding date. And there's also the COVID-19 relief bill. That's something that, you know, we were kept waiting to see happen before the election. And then now it obviously is happening after the election, <laughs> if it's going to happen at all. Uh, you know, so that's a, a bill that really needs attention. Americans need help. And then there's also a number of tax extenders, not the least of which is the new market tax credit. It's set to expire at the end of this year. And then there's other tax extenders as well. So maybe, Peter, you could share what is is or isn't possible with respect to you know funding the federal government sort of beyond December 11th, COVID-19 relief bill, and tax extenders, and any other tax provisions that we could potentially get in with the affordable community. We've been talking a lot about the 4% floor, and is that sort of a possibility in the lame duck? And I, I, I if you could share your thoughts on that, I know it's a long-winded question with lots of parts, so feel free to answer two or three of them and ask me to restate the fourth one. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's, to me, it, the, I wanted to spend a little bit of extra time here because we're going to be going into this lame duck session without a mandate, as you noted. Uh, whoever wins the presidency clearly doesn't have a mandate. Uh, so, and there will be, you know, re-canvassing and, and likely some recounts. Uh, so that'll be dragging on. And then there'll be this aspect of control of the Senate, likely depending upon runoffs in January. And how does all that play in terms of getting bipartisan agreement to help pass legislation to help those in need and to keep the federal government operating? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it does have all these complicated parts. But let me, uh, let me take a start and uh, uh, can elaborate further if needed. Uh, you know, I think as we've discussed at our conferences uh, and uh, um, and uh, other outlets, uh, we've always noted that uh, if you have a status quo election, which you know if uh, Trump ends up finding that narrow pathway to 270, uh, uh, and the uh, um, Senate remains in Republican hands and the House remains in Democratic hands, that in some respects is uh, the most ideal situation for a productive lame duck because there is no uh, legislative advantage to wait uh, to the next following year if th there is no sort of change in power. Uh, and there's a, you know, a number of these pending items that need to be addressed. And you know, Congress historically, in the context of the status quo election, uh, has typically wanted to clean uh, the deck and uh, make sure... We uh, address all the the to do items uh, for one year before proceeding to the next, uh, the beginning of the new Congress. So uh, uh, there is that dynamic that could be at play uh, um, um, in the, the context of a, a lame duck. But even if, for example, as we've discussed and appears that Biden has got an easier path to 270, I still think uh, to a large extent uh, that, uh, you know, there will be a desire uh, by Congress to try to uh, um, uh, clean up uh, and address, uh, you know, to-do items in the lame duck rather than waiting. Uh, I, I think uh, the House will look at the uncertainty with respect to the election and uh, want to to uh, not necessarily bank uh, 
the, all their legislative eggs, so to speak, uh, in, on the prospects of a Biden presidency uh, if there's a, a very contested election. Uh, and even if he is determined and, and uh, uh, recognized uh, as the winner of the election in the context of the next couple of weeks before legislative action, I, I still think that uh, there there will be a desire, I think, among House Democrats to sort of move beyond, uh, you know, not to mention that if you know House Democrats end up losing seats, uh, then it becomes easier for them to pass things with the current Congress as opposed to uh, the uh, the future House. Um, so I, I, I think there's a uh, a decent chance, and we we did actually hear today that uh, uh, the current Senate Majority uh, Leader Mitch McConnell, who was reelected uh, um, uh, yesterday, and as we've been discussing, uh, you know, appears you know, more likely to remain as a Majority Leader, uh, did announce that uh, he intends uh, to bring up uh, COVID nineteen relief legislation uh, in the lame duck, uh, and so. Uh, and we know that uh, the House had uh, plenty of discussions leading up to the election on COVID-19 relief with the administration. And I can imagine that those negotiations uh, are, you know, in the process of being essentially restarted. Uh, and uh, I can imagine uh, that Congress will want to advance. As you point out, much of the country is hurting uh, to a large extent uh, and probably cannot wait until uh, the next president is inaugurated. Uh, and so I, I do think there's a, a chance that that, that uh, um, uh, legislation will be considered. And uh, McConnell also noticed, uh, announced that as he intends to bring up a full year, uh, um, a fiscal year 2021 appropriations bill uh, in the lame duck uh, session. And so uh, I, I can imagine that uh, would be uh, something that could uh, potentially be considered in advance of the December 11th uh, uh, deadline to, to fund the federal government. Uh, and that provides, uh, you know, one of the best vehicles for tax legislation, including tax extenders, uh, as you mentioned, the new markets tax credit or um, uh, low-income housing tax credit provisions such as uh, the uh, 4% floor. Uh, you know, the sort of the bigger the legislative package uh, that gets considered, uh, um, you know, the easier it is uh, to have you know, a broader set of, of tax provisions. And so I think, you know, it's still early yet uh, and you never want to be too de definitive, but I, I lucky to me, in my opinion, that uh, the lame duck session has a, a decent chance to be productive uh, and we can advance uh, some, uh, you know, tax priorities uh, as part of uh, whatever is on that uh, lame duck agenda. Great. Thank you, Peter. That was a very thorough answer. It's very insightful. I uh, appreciate those uh, clarifying remarks. And there's uh, there's so much more we could be uh, talking about. We could be speculating on uh, if Trump were to be reelected president, who's staying in his cabinet and who might be moving on. And if uh, Biden were to be elected president, who could be in his cabinet? And then similarly, what the regulatory policy 
uh, is likely to be under a Biden administration versus a Trump administration. When we think about that, we think about opportunity zones, we think about Community Reinvestment Act, we think about treasury regulations. There's, there's so much that we think about in those various areas. We think about you know, the part of housing and urban development. We think about the Federal Housing Finance Agency and regulating Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and more and more and more. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all of that uh, on the balance of this podcast, but we do have uh, some additional resources. I want to first point out to our listeners that Peter did prepare a great blog post that gave a quick overview of the election results. Uh, and just go on to our website or, and read the blog. I'll tweet out a link to the blog, as will Peter. So please uh, check out that blog. Uh, also, Peter, you're going to be moderating a Washington Wire session at the Novogratz Finance and Renewable Energy Tax Credits virtual conference tomorrow. And, and many of our listeners are very focused on renewable energy. Others aren't, but there'll still be lots of good information that they might want to be registering for the conference for. Maybe you could share a little bit about what they could expect to hear on this uh, Washington Wire session tomorrow. Sure. Uh, I'll be joined in that session by uh, several esteemed co-panelists. Uh, we'll have Aruna Kalyanam, who is a senior tax counsel for the House Ways and Means Committee Majority uh, and the Select Revenue and Measures Subcommittee staff. That's where uh, that subcommittee has jurisdiction over uh, many of the tax, community development tax credits and, and the renewable energy uh, credits. Uh, we'll also have uh, Bridget Kelleher, who is the senior policy advisor for Senator Ka Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. She's a member of the Senate Finance Committee in the uh, Democratic uh, Senate leadership, uh, and uh, as well as uh, a leading uh, advocate of uh, the investment tax credit. Uh, we'll also be joined by Jeremy Woodrum, who is the Director of Congressional Affairs for the Solar Industry Association, or SIA. Um, uh, and I'll be joined by Aaron Severn, who is the Senior Director of Federal Affairs for the American Wind Energy Association, or uh, AWEA. Great. Thank you for that, uh, Peter. And if you're interested in registering for that event, just go to www.nuvaco.com slash events, and you can find the registration page there, or just search Novogratic Renewable Energy Conference. Uh, and Peter and I will also send out a tweet for the conference, so you can just follow us on Twitter. My uh, handle is at Novogratic. Maybe, Peter, share your Twitter handle. Yeah, it's Novaco Policy. Great. Thank you. Uh, and thank you very much, Peter, for joining me for this special Tax Credit Tuesday on a Wednesday. Uh, and I also want to invite you to join me. And I know you won't. I know you won't turn me down. <laughs> nope, I will not. Looking I invite you to, to join it. me for the podcast next Tuesday, where we'll be able to talk with much more specific specificity uh, with respect to the presidential race uh, and control of the Senate. Uh, and then we'll also start to think a little bit more past the lame duck session into what we can be thinking about in terms of 2021 and legislative and regulatory policy. Uh, and I do also want to note that for those of you that want a little bit more in depth and would like to you know, see, see an assessment of the election results and policy uh, in a visual way, uh, Peter and I are going to be hosting a webinar. And that's going to be on Thursday, November 19th. Uh, and that webinar will detail the effects of the election on the community development community. And we'll go into much more specific application to local housing tax credits, 
new market tax credits, renewable energy tax credits, historic tax credits, as well as opportunity zones uh, and other policy aspects around affordable housing and community development. And we're really excited that we're going to have joining us for that discussion, uh, Karen DeStorrell. She's a tax policy research associate with Peter. And those of you that are active within our working groups, get lots of emails from her uh, updating you on developments within the various tax incentives that we work. The webinar that we have scheduled will, will be two hours. Hopefully that won't scare you away. You could always pause it and step away and come back. But there's a lot we wanna cover. We wanna talk about not only you know the specifics, all the tax incentives, we also give a better sense as to who's likely to be leading what committees in the House and the Senate. That's all gonna be very relevant. And once again, we don't have time to do all of that on this podcast. Um, so, and then obviously whatever updates we have coming up uh, between now and then, we'll be able to include and we'll tweet out a registration link for that as well. So with that, that brings me to the end of our election edition of the podcast. Thank you again, Peter, for joining me this week. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll continue to provide election insights in the coming weeks and months ahead. You know, beyond the events I've mentioned already, we do have an affordable housing virtual conference scheduled for early December. And then we'll have our regular scheduled sort of events in January uh, and beyond. So with that, uh, that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik, thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.